So, I hope you're feeling all worshipful and uh, joyful and full of the uh, joys of spring, as it were, uh, this morning, because this morning I have a passage about hell. Really. Uh, I just want to say, the guys, you've led us fantastically in worship. You know, I was coming to this thinking, how am I going to speak to about hell joyfully? But actually, those songs have really helped in terms of giving us an understanding of judgment, the grave, and the cross, and how hell is an important part of that. Um, as I've been preparing for this, the thing that really got me, uh, um, uh, as I've been preparing this over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so that I've been preaching here at Jubilee, I've never, ever done a whole sermon on hell. I've talked bits about it, obviously, about hell and wrath and judgment. It's very much part of our gospel, but I've never done a whole thing. And that's funny, really, when you think that Jesus spoke about hell more than all of the all of the other writers in the New Testament put together. He did. They didn't know that. Billy Graham, uh, the famous evangelist, once said, if we had more hell in the pulpit, we would have less hell in the pew. I like that. Now, I know a lot of people don't like hell. It raises lots of questions, doesn't it? That's why we often don't talk about it. How can a God of love and compassion send people to hell? I hear that a lot. Or maybe, isn't it potentially dangerous to believe that if you don't trust in Jesus Christ as God and you're, you're doomed to hell, won't that create a, an us-and-them mentality? Won't we start to treat people differently? Isn't that the slippery path to things like exclusion, abuse, division, and even violence? These are the concerns, the real concerns that people have. And do you know what? I sympathize with those questions. In fact, those are some of the questions that I had a number of years ago, before I became a Christian. In fact, even today in some parts of the world, history has and is playing some of these worries, these things out in the name of Christianity or other faiths. Dreadful, horrific, fake. But what I want to put to you this morning is that rather than taking, trying to take it out, as some of high-profile Bible teachers have tried to do in the last few years, trying to make our gospel, our Christian faith, more palatable, rather than doing that, I propose we should look at it deeper, seeing it really as a vital, crucial part of the gospel, the joy news of Jesus. It gives us a much greater insight. Hell and judgment gives us a much greater insight into the seriousness, the realities, the seriousness of humanity's problems, your problems, this world and the mess it's in. Hell should, if we really understand it, give us a real boost, a rocket boost to get us out there sharing our message, sharing the message of Jesus. Hell should point us to the wonder and compassion and the amazing grace of the God of the Bible, Jesus. In fact, I'll go as far as to say this morning that if you really understand the doctrine of hell, 
It should inspire you to deep, heartfelt worship. Hell is important, and we should, and as Christians, although we don't like talking about it, we should want to know about it. And so that's where we're going this morning, all smiley faces. Let's read Mark 9, 42 to 50, shall we? Apparently, Chris, now I'm quoting someone. You should never quote someone because they're, they're, you know, they don't always pass the message on. And, and also, they probably weren't meant to tell me, or I wasn't meant to hear this anywhere, but apparently Chris read this and said, what on earth does that mean? <laughs> and that was the first thing that I thought when I read it as well. Um, so, let's read Mark 9, chapter 42 to 50. If anyone causes one of these little... That's Chris uh, on your dinner, by the way. I don't want to put anybody else in trouble. Uh, if, anyone, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if they had a large millstone around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. <coughs> and if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than, have, than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is never quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Yes, Lord, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. I thank you that as we go through the Bible line by line, as we go through your Gospels line by line, we come to some tricky doctrines, some tricky things that you have to and want to tell us about. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we look to this whole thing with our eyes on you, with our eyes on your wonderful cross, with, your, with our eyes on your wonderful message, life-giving message, life-saving message, life-transforming message. And I pray, Jesus, that as we uh, hear uh, what you've put on my heart this morning through your scripture, I pray, Lord God, that we rise in worship and wonder to the Lord Jesus Christ, our wonderful Savior. Right, so as usual, three things three points uh, uh, this morning about the importance of hell. So firstly, hell, the doctrine of hell, is important because Jesus spoke about it so seriously. He took it very seriously. We really, we really need to get this. Because if we don't, we just put up with and tolerate sin both in ourselves and in the world we live in. We don't see it as serious. Without Jesus' understanding of hell, um, we become a little passive 
when it comes to being messengers of his life-changing message, the gospel of Jesus. You see, you see, to Jesus, hell was horrible. It was horrible. When he talked about it, Jesus never, ever minced his words. In Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of hell as a place of eternal forever, on and on and on, fire and punishment, the final dwelling place of those who have rejected him. Maybe that's what Jonathan's grandma saw a glimpse of before she saw Jesus and the answer. How many of our friends are there our family who don't know Jesus. Gulp. If you're not a Christian here this morning, do you know this Jesus? In Matthew 5, 24, Jesus talks about sin and the consequences of it as the fire of hell. Mostly when Jesus talks about hell, the main word he uses is, is is the Greek word Gehenna, Gehenna. What's Gehenna all about? Or more appropriately, where is Gehenna? You see, Gehenna, Gehenna was a real place. On the southwest corner of the city of Jerusalem, there was this valley known as the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. You can see it with an arrow uh, pointing down there. In fact, it still exists today. And even today, if you go there, there are no homes, there are no businesses, there's no one doing trade there, there's no one going for walks in the park. Ben-Hinnom, the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Why? Well, it's because what happened centuries before in Jewish history, way before Jesus, way back in 700 AD, one of Israel's worst kings, a man named Ahaz, began to worship a Canaanite god named Molech. And part, and part of their worship, his worship, involved, involved atrocious, unspeakable acts, one of which was child sacrifice. And because of, of this horrid history, this valley, the valley of Ben-Hinnom, as we can see in the picture, was thought to be cursed, and is still thought to be cursed, and cut off from God. No one would choose to go there. No one would choose to live there. And over time, actually, it became a huge, rotten trash heap where the locals would dump and burn their garbage and even throw corpses of criminals or bodies of people who never had enough money to pay for their funeral. Gehenna. You see, that's what, that's what Mark is talking about in the passage that we've just read describing hell. He says, the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. He's referring to the maggots that lived in the corpses on this awful trash heap, and the smoldering fire which never, ever seemed to go out. Gehenna. It stunk. And people began to call this cursed, forever burning, godless, valley trash heap, Gehinnom, which later became the word Gehenna. Pretty gross, eh? 
This afternoon's Sunday dinner is going to be very different for you, isn't it? Gehenna, hell, as Jesus described it, was a place of unimaginable, eternal, painful fire, outer darkness, and terrible misery and unhappiness. Am I getting the message across to you? And Jesus wanted to know that, wanted us to know that, in the most blood-curdling detail that he describes it to us. He does. What do you think about hell? Do you think about hell? At the school gate, at the workplace, as you walk out of your door in the morning, when you watch the telly, when you watch, uh, uh, when you read a paper, we don't think about it often, do we? But Jesus did. So point one, Jesus took hell very seriously. And if it was that important to Jesus, we need to get a, a grasp of it. Secondly, hell is important because it shows us the understanding of hell, the doctrine of hell is important because it shows us how infinitely dependent we are on God for everything. We are. Now, we live in a world that doesn't like that, I know. It's not second nature for us to look to God first and foremost for everything we need. Our lives aren't totally shaped by an intimate awareness of Him in everything we do, everything we say, everything we think. The longer we've been a Christian, we might think we do, but deep down, our lives, if you really look at it, don't look like that. We'd rather look to ourselves, to the other things we yearn for, fight for, argue over, lose sleepless nights over, to make us happy to make us feel secure and content. You know the things I'm talking about. Let me put it differently. It's deep within our nature to say, God, please leave me alone. I can do it better without you. That's actually the Bible's definition of sin, isn't it? Leave me alone, God. I don't want you in this situation. Now, there's the traditional version of that, leave me alone, which looks like all the bad things we think about when, it comes, when we think about sin. It's about not following God's rules, not following the do's and don'ts correctly. Jesus talked about it earlier on in Mark. We've uh, heard it um, over the course of this series on Mark, didn't he? He said it in Mark 7, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, makes them unclean before God. Jesus says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils, sin, comes from inside and defile a person. It's in our very nature. Sin, breaking the rules. It's easy to see how all of that stuff could lead to hell. But what's fascinating, as I've been reading uh, the book of Mark, uh, and the other Gospels actually, is when it comes to Jesus' view of sin, he, who is he forever having a go at? 
You see, Jesus is forever having a go at precisely those people who make it their life's mission to keep the rules and regulations to the dot. The Pharisees, doesn't he? That's what their whole life was built on. He says to them in Matthew 12 and 25, uh, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil, they're following all the rules, uh, say anything good for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of? But these guys were the ones who were keeping the rules. Come on, Jesus, aren't these guys the good guys? What are you playing at? What do you mean? But you see, in all their good deeds, Jesus saw deeper. Jesus sees their heart. Cold, proud, self-righteous, self-absorbed, building their whole identity and security and worth on their moral performance, going through the motions, rather than their heartfelt, all-out love and worship and praise for God. We must watch this. Because to them, this is what Jesus says very astonishingly, how will you escape from being condemned to hell? Because that's what hell is. Life without God, not realizing that it's Him we need most of all. You see, if the Bible's definition of sin is leave me alone, God, leave me alone, God, hell is God ultimately saying, okay. I'll say that again. If the Bible's definition of sin is leave me alone, God, hell is God ultimately Slow to anger he is, but ultimately saying okay. That's why Jesus is so forceful in this passage about rooting it out, the passage we've just read, because he knows that sin leads to hell. The consequences of sin ultimately lead to hell. So what do these metaphors, these Bible images, these pictures about hell actually mean? Eternal fire, darkness, worms that eat and eat away forever. What's Jesus actually getting at? Sometimes when I'm chatting to people uh, at Alpha, they often say, hey, you're a thoughtful guy, you're a scientific guy. Um, Surely you don't think hell is a place of burning fire and total darkness, do you? And usually, to that, I, always, I, I tend to say, no way, not at all. I think a lot of it is, uh, is, the, is the Bible being metaphorical. It's, it's about images. It's about um, pictures describing hell. And when I say that, they usually go, phew. I'm really glad about that. I was getting all worried there. And then I usually follow on by saying this. Hold on, though. Those Bible images, those pictures... Those metaphors are, describe, are describing hell in a much, 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 much worse way than just fire and darkness. To which they usually go, ah. There's no comfort 
in seeing the Bible's imagery of hell as pictures, as metaphors. Jonathan Edwards says this, when metaphors are used in Scripture about spiritual things, they always, always fall short of the literal truth. Think about that. So what are these Bible, biblical images trying to get across about hell? Fire, darkness, worms. Pretty grim, really. You see, hell is a place of total cut-off darkness and separation from God. That's what it's trying to get across. A place of absolute isolation from the favor and face of God, where the sustaining, life-giving light of God, which we see all around us, whether you believe in Him, whether you believe in him or not, actually, stops, ends, is no more. Andrew Wilson, the Bible teacher down, at, uh, uh, down south, says, all breath, all life belongs to God, and it, 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 and it is his to give out as he pleases. And that fact should cause us both to fear and worship. To fear because we have a God who we are totally dependent on, whether we believe in him or not. To worship because we have a God who is active in the world at all times and therefore will never, ever be removed from our situation, except in hell. Because hell is... God's final answer to leave me alone. A godless abyss, total, utter darkness, total separation from God. And then there's all the fire stuff. What does fire do? What does fire do? Fire destroys things, doesn't it? Fire disintegrates things. In the fire, things fall apart. Hell is a place of eternal, forever, fire, falling apart, disintegration, destruction. In one of uh, C.S. Lewis's space books, uh, space, part of his space trilogy, one of the books is called Perilandra, and he describes the satanic figure, a guy called Professor Weston, as a description of what choosing hell, life without God, leave me alone, sin does to someone if it goes on and on and on and on. He says of Professor Weston, the villain in the story, he says this, the forces which had begun perhaps years ago to eat away his hum humanity had now completed their work. The intoxicated will which had been slowly poisoning the intelligence and the affections had now at last poisoned itself and the whole psychic organism had fallen to pieces. Only a ghost was left, an everlasting unrest, a crumbling, a ruin, an order of decay. Without God, life, joy, meaning slowly ebbs away. Without God, we fall apart. Humanity disintegrates. We see that now partially in the sinful, rotting world we live in. But in hell, that will go on and on and on and on. If you're not a Christian here this morning, what are you choosing? Life with him or life without him? Because if you say, leave me alone, ultimately, in his fairness, 
He will let you have what you want. He'll say, okay. As Lewis puts it, the doors of hell are locked tightly on the inside. What could be more fair than that? So hell is important because Jesus thought it was so important and brought it to the people often. Hell is important because it shows us that we cannot live independent of God. Don't be, don't be, um, don't let the lies of our world, the culture of our world, the telly or whatever it says, teach you otherwise. We cannot live without God. And thirdly and finally, hell is important because it shows us just how much, how tremendously, how phenomenally God loves us. It does. What do I mean by that? As Christians, as Christians, we believe in a suffering God, don't we? That's a hard thing for many people to get their heads around. When I talk to people at Alpha, this is often what shocks them the most, actually. Some are often offended, particularly when I sit on the Iranian table. Jesus, God himself, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, was executed on a Roman cross. Fact. Mind-boggling. But do you know what? This might shock you a little when I say this. Other people have died similarly horrifying physical deaths like Jesus did. Thousands of people, actually, were crucified before and after Jesus. He wasn't the only one. In fact, on the surface, you might, when you read the, the Gospels, when, you, when we get into Mark later on, on the surface, you might even come to the conclusion that the other martyrs that followed Jesus died much more heroically than Jesus did. I can see you looking a bit worried. When Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, two famous Christian martyrs, were burned at the stake in 1555, it's recorded that Latimer said car calmly to his fellow martyr, uh, martyr uh, Ridley, he said, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Wow. If that was me, I'd have gone, ah, ouch. The Maccabean martyrs, you can read about them. They suffered horrible deaths. If you're not, if you're, uh, Word Plus is a great place, by the way, to uh, learn about church history. Come along to it. The Maccabean martyrs, they suffered horrible deaths under the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes as they refused to worship Greek gods. They were amazing examples, these martyrs, of, uh, of physical and spiritual courage in the face of persecution. Some of these guys would shout out defiantly, worshipping God confidently uh, as they were having some of their limbs chopped off. What staggering courage, what, what amazing bravery. It reminds me of Braveheart. Have you ever noticed, though, Jesus didn't die this way? Jesus suffered very differently from some of the well-known martyrs that we read about. He didn't do it with a British stiff upper lip. 
Jesus didn't face his approaching death with the fearlessness and the bravado that you might have expected or that people might have expected of a Messiah, a spiritual hero. When we read the Gospels, Jesus was actually overcome with torment, literally shaken by what was ahead of him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told in Mark 14 that he began to be very distressed and troubled. Jesus said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point, even to the point of death. Luke describes him in Luke 20 in agony, praying fervently. His sweat became like drops of blood. He was in physical shock. He was a wreck. In Gethsemane, we hear the heart-wrenching truth about what Jesus really thought about his death. Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Get me out of this. I cannot bear it. And even on the cross, Jesus shouts out in a loud voice, one of the most famous and painful cries of sorrow ever heard. Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His cry, Spurgeon tells us, distills the concentrated anguish of the world. How come? Why was Jesus so much more overwhelmed and grief-stricken by his death compared to some of the most famous martyrs that followed him? Richard Bordy writes, Nowhere in all of the Bible do we encounter any mystery that so staggers the mind and shocks the Christian consciousness as this tortured cry from the lips of our dying Savior. How come? Well, the answer is in the cup. The cup that Jesus stares into at Gethsemane the night before. We read about it later. We will read about it later in Mark 14. He, Jesus, fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass for him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take, please take this cup away from me. What's in the cup? What's in this cup that is so bad, so horrific, so terrifying? I'll tell you what's in the cup. Hell. Hell is in that cup. C.J. Mahaney writes, This cup contains the full vehemence and fierceness of God's holy wrath poured out against all sin. It's the cup that was intended for all of sinful humanity to drink. Your cup and mine. The cup is the cup of God's wrath against sin, yours, mine, everyone's, forever. For all our self-centeredness, our selfishness, all our disregard for God, the full fury of the wrath of God for our sin, the cup, the cup of God saying, okay, I'll leave you alone if that's what you want. As Jesus stares in the cup, he sees what hell is like, total God-forsakenness, total abandonment, total rejection. And hear this, 
hear this. He chooses to drink it. Does that not move you? On the cross, Jesus takes all of our hells deep into his soul. All the fire, all the worms, all the darkness, all the torment, all the sin. That's why there was shuddering and terror and deep distress from the Son of God. That's why he wasn't like any of the other martyrs. Because he was going through something infinitely more painful, terribly different. In fact, the physical pain of crucifixion was a, a walk in the park compared to, the, compared to hell for Jesus. When Jesus breathed his last, he said this, it is finished. That's what we started our song uh, worship this morning with, didn't we? It is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. What did he mean? He meant the consequences of, of sin need to be, need to, the, he, say he, he said the, he meant the consequences of sin need no more be hell. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to hell, that, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It is finished. Jesus, Jubilee, Jesus took hell, took on hell so that we would never have to. By choosing to trust him and only him, we now have a way out. He loves you. Who else would do that for you? Do you see it? How much does Jesus love you? How much does this Savior love you? That much? How much? Hell much? That's how much hell much. Look when, all, look, when you're all upset and thinking, God doesn't love me, I can be like this sometimes. When you're crying out to him, do you really care, God? Think about hell and get real. For some of you, that might be the best pastoral advice that you've had for years. Look at what he's went. Look at what he went through for you. When you look out on Teesside and see that all, all that goes on, all the dreadful things that we see around us, think about hell. When you're having your conversations or watching telly or reading the paper, look, think about hell. When, you, when you're praying for God to move, think about hell. Because hell amazingly launches you into action, into mission, into, Je into, into Jesus with a zeal and a passion like, unlike many other things do not. Do you hear that? Jesus knew it. Jesus spoke about it regularly. And he wants us to know it. And he wants us to be provoked by it. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Why? Because he already has. It is finished. We have a God who is totally for us, Jubilee, and if, he's to and if he is totally for us, 
Who can stand against us? That's the truth. That's the motivation. That's the promise. Now live that out. Live that truth out wherever you are, wherever God puts you, wherever, whoever God puts you with. That is the importance of Jesus' understanding, our understanding, a biblical understanding of hell. Let's stand, shall we, if the band can come out. After all of that, it'll be good to worship. And it'll be good to worship, I think, if it's okay with you guys, on the back of that first song, The Power. This is the power of the cross. Because as I heard those words this morning, the seriousness of hell, the seriousness of judgment, lifted my spirits in worshipful, worship, worship and thankfulness to the God who's taken it away from us and the God who calls us to be salt, as that passage said, salt out there. Because the less we take these serious things on, the, our saltiness becomes less salty. That's what it was talking about in that passage. But God wants us to be Bible-rooted, truth-rooted messengers for him. Let's worship and let's praise this wonderful